What's up, my brothers and sisters? Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast, where we talk about all things pertaining to life on and off the fireground. The views and the opinions expressed are those of your host and our guest. Today, we're sitting down with Fire Chief Aaron Colwell of the Will Rogers Airport Fire Department, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We met up in Tulsa while we were at IFSTA conference, sat down, chatted about his experiences in the Air Force, his experiences in the fire service, and so much more. Hope you enjoy. Aaron, thanks, man, for sitting down and rapping with me. Uh, I'm excited to have an opportunity to chat with you. Uh, thanks for having and, me. Yeah, man. It's uh, so I want to hear. You know, you are a uh, a fire chief. Which when I say those words, you're gonna make uh, this might be funny to you. Maybe I don't know. It makes me laugh because you have a baby face. You look so young to me. <laughs> I do you totally get that a lot? Do. All the time. All the time. That's why I'm growing the mustache. So <laughs> hopefully, kind of to give you that. some credibility. You got to yeah, grow that thing. Get the mustache. <laughs> so, um, so chief. I want to talk to you a little bit about your journey, um, you know, some of the things that you've done to get to this point in your life. And there's been some, you know, you and I, before we hit record, we were talking about some of the, some of the events in our lives that shape who we are. And, yeah. and, and on our walk over here, as we were coming to sit down, we, we were talking a little bit about your time in, in the Air Force and the service that you've done there. And so I want to talk about all that stuff. So take me back. You grew up in, in, uh, where'd you grow up? Norm, at? Norman, Oklahoma, Oklahoma, Norman, Oklahoma. What was that like? Yes, sir, man. It was, uh, that's Sooner Nation right there, you know? OU, Boomer Sooner, all day long. You know, uh, I remember being a little kid, um, growing up in the early '90s. Um, so I'm not, I'm not that young, right? Early '90s. So um, we had, uh, you know, my dad grew up in the '80s. OU football, right? Big time OU football. And so mm-hmm. when I was a little kid, my dad didn't understand it because we could just walk into the OU stadium because they had terrible football coaches. But down there in Norman. OU football was life, and that's that's kind of how we grew up, was looking forward to every Saturday in the fall and baseball games in the spring. And um, my dad, uh, I, I love my family to death, and they had a, a great, um, kind of a pretty successful commercial cabinet company, right? Uh, they did all the mill work. They did bid jobs on contracted government work. And um, from an early age, my father taught me how to uh, how to work, how to be a laborer how to hit the grindstone as you would. Yeah. And um, I started working in the summers about age 13, working with my mother and father at the, uh, at the wood shop and cleaning out sawdust, sweeping floors, you know, occasionally getting to help out building a cabinet by hitting a hammer on a nail, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, yeah. That was probably a pretty expensive, uh, high risk move for your dad to let a kiddo start swinging hammers around the cabinets. Oh yeah. I tore all sorts of stuff up. Right. You know, I didn't <laughs> so know costing him money. Sure. Yeah. Sure. But, uh, I learned a lot and, uh, you know, in those cabinet shops, it's, you know, like you see here in Oklahoma right now, it's hundred degrees outside in the summertime and we didn't have air conditioning and you're covered in sawdust and sweat and sweeping the floors. And when that got cleaned up, you walk down to the next saw and the saws already spit a bunch of sawdust off and <laughs> sweep that up and then turn around the saw you just cleaned up. It's all dirty. You gotta go clean that again. And it was never ending work for me back when I was 13 years old. What did you, what did you learn from that? Because clearly it's a, it was an impression to you. Yes. So uh, my father, even even to this day, you know, he's pretty much retired and thinking about just hanging out in the mountains all the time. But he still wakes up at about 4 o'clock in the morning every single day. Okay. Hold on. Pause real quick. What mountains? Because my limited experience <laughs> in Oklahoma has been here in Tulsa. And 
There is the only tall thing around here is the skyscrapers. No, I haven't no, seen no, no, no. I so, haven't seen anything taller than that. <laughs> There's no mountains. Nothing in the state of Oklahoma. My dad and my mom they they love Colorado. Okay, and I have a I have a little bitty brother. I say a little bitty. He's not little bitty. He's thirty. So, um, but little bitty for me. And and he's in the Air Force over there in Colorado. Um, he does his job over there, and I think he's actually going to get stationed maybe Florida or something. But they go visit him quite a bit in Colorado and. Those are the real mountains. Right? <laughs> okay, yeah. I, I get that. I, that's a that's one of my favorite spaces is to get up into Southern Colorado and and kind of Eastern Colorado too. It's so beautiful up oh, there. Oh my goodness! Do your folks have a place up there? No, no, they actually are looking. Um, oh, okay. My father recently kind of got done with retiring, so he's uh, he's looking, but he still wakes up at four in the morning, and uh, he gets up, he reads his book, very diligent, very uh, very disciplined in his own personal growth, and uh, you know he hasn't gone to school since college you know over 30 years ago mm -hmm. and uh, he always is reading he's always developing himself even as a cabinet maker the man is reading and studying on how to be a better man yeah. and that to me spoke um, beyond words on how I've, I've grown to be who I am today yeah. is, is learning from his example right um, so not only how to work hard but how to uh, stay driven and focused Mm -hmm. And uh, he's definitely a family man. Yeah. You know, he did it all for us. And that was, uh, I'm very blessed. Very, very blessed. Yeah. No, what an amazing example, you know, that he's setting for, for, for all of us, but for you in particular, right? Watching him labor that way and, and then, you know, be studious and, sure. and, you know, applying those lessons in life, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, that's awesome. What's one thing that you look back on, like like a, a specific a specific thing that maybe he taught you that you always resonate on always resonate on i remember it was it was one of the summer days you know it's for me i was probably 14 15 years old in my mind um my father uh his brothers his dad his grandfather they've owned this cabinet shop for decades you know it's it's a third generation family business and i think at that age i was just thinking and halfway expecting to to run the business someday and i remember it's five o'clock in the morning i mean I, it's the sun's not up yet i'm a 15 year old kid that i don't want to go to work right i mean it's not what i want to do <laughs> but my dad's making me go to work and i'm driving up there and i'm like dad how come i can't just do what you do and sit in your office you know i want to i want to learn how to do the paperwork <laughs> side i don't want to sweep the floors i need either. to learn how to run this joint yeah how am i supposed to how am i supposed <laughs> to run it and take it over someday and my dad says aaron you're never going to work here Okay. And he said, Aaron, you're never going to work here. Uh, you know, this is not the life for you. I don't want you to be here. You're going to have to make your own way. It's going to be hard, and you're going to have to work hard. But this is not going to be a business I'm just going to give to you. Right? And uh, I remember that conversation on my way up. It's like, wow, I'm, I'm busting my tail, doing all this stuff, working for my father and my family, and he wants me to have something different, something better. He's instilling me these skills to take it elsewhere right and that that conversation i remember i'll never forget it you know at that point i was like and, and at that moment i'm like well how come i can't just sit in the office with the air conditioning instead of having to be out here sweeping the hot floors right, right. but looking back on it that's probably one of the strongest lessons he's ever taught me because at that point i never had in my mind mm -hmm. that i'm going to be given this business at that point and he's always offered it you know there was times in my adult life where I was down on my luck or I needed a, you know, a little bit of side job, he'd always let me come back and work for him. 
but with never the mind or the intention that, hey, I'm going to let you have this cabinet company. Right. right? You're never going to be a millwork guy. I'm not ever going to just give it to you. Now, if you want to earn it, you can earn it, but you're going to earn it. This is not something you're just going to get. And I think that was the message he was trying to send me, and that was the message that I received even at that young age of 14, 15. Yeah. Right. And so at that point, uh, as I kind of got older in high school, you know, I tried to think about what I wanted to do. Um, I started thinking about, you know, architecture, or engineering, as far as my college studies go. Um, decided to go to Southeastern Oklahoma State University in Durant. It's about a two-hour drive from Norman, Oklahoma, and um, studied business there. And then um, after that, so I was paying for college on my own. Um, I not smart enough to get the scholarships. I didn't <laughs> play sports to get the scholarships, right? Mom and dad didn't pay for it. And I didn't want the student loans. You know, I, I busted my tail and, you know, month to month I'm paying my college tuition. I'm, my dad and mom helped me out with car insurance and helped me out with the dorm room stuff a little bit here and there. And fantastic helping me out with that. But when it came down to it, I ran out of money. So I got about two years into college and now I'm a 21, 22 year old kid and I'm out of money. So I had to move back home and um, move back home for a little bit. And I was just going to work a couple semesters at Lowe's to kind of make up some money. Build the so coffers back up. Get back into college. Yeah. Well, at Lowe's, I was working and did a good enough job taking my skills that I'd learned from a cabinet company and ended up making the kind of moving up into like management positions. So I started working into management positions and kind of started enjoying it. So between the ages of 21, 22, 23, um, by the age of 23, I kind of thought that was going to be my career. Well, uh, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in faith, and I'm a firm believer in kind of my own uh, convictions and stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, um, one day, and this is where I fully believe, and I'm a true, true believer that every single person in our industry, the fire service industry, it's a calling. Whether they believe it or not, I believe everybody that works in our business is a calling. Now, you might not have had the same messages I got, and I might have not got the same messages you got, but there was one day in that Lowe's that a gentleman walked up, and I'm stocking the shelf or whatever, and he said, hey, aren't you a fireman? I'm like, no, I'm not a fireman, <laughs> right? Well, about an hour later, a little lady walks around the corner. Hey, you look like my friend. He's a fireman. I'm like, no, no, I'm not a fireman. Well, I had two other people come up Do that day. Do you not day. see yeah. my Lowe's apron? Yeah. <laughs> I'm working at Lowe's, right? <laughs> I had two more people that day tell me I'm a fireman. Like, you look like a fireman. You look like a buddy who's a fireman. Hey, I think you're the volunteer. Didn't you come to my house fire? You look like a fireman. It was the strangest thing. Well, later that day, on my lunch break, I was going to just go down the street to Taco Bell. Mm. Well, on my way to Taco Bell, I don't know why. I don't know how. I don't understand how I got there. But I went to the Taco Bell about eight miles away. There's a Taco Bell three blocks from the Lowe's I was working at. I don't know how I got there, but I was just cruising in my own mind or whatever. And I got to this other Taco Bell parked. I'm like, I don't know why I'm over here on this side of town, wasting my lunch hour. Walk inside, sit down, and uh, standing right there is one of my friends' dad, um, Danny Glover. And uh, not Danny Glover, what is his no. name? Uh, Mr. Glover, <laughs> Matt Glover's father. And uh, he was a Norman fireman. And uh, I stood in line right behind him. He's catching up with me. I'm catching up with him. We sit down, um, had lunch. I didn't know he was there. He just happened to be there. And he just calmly asked, have you ever thought about being a fireman? Right? And I was like, 
Well, now I am, right? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I guess after the I day am. I've had. It. Yeah. <laughs> what? How? If I was going to be a fireman, how would I be a fireman? That right. was my next question. Yeah. Like, you're the one who knows how to do it. You're a, a fire captain here in the city of Norman, Oklahoma, my hometown. How do I be a fireman? And he said, well, first you got to get your EMT. And I was like, well, when can I get my EMT? He's like, I don't know. Go try to OCCC, which is a little college up north. Hmm. Um, so I went up to Oklahoma City Community College that afternoon after I got off work about 3 o'clock. The counselors were still open. I walked in and said, hey, I was told I need to come and get EMT. When's the next class or how does it work or what does EMT even do? I don't know. What's that even that. mean? <laughs> I was yeah. given this acronym. Yeah, and they, and they said – Oh, we have a class starting this Monday, and we actually have two slots available. Would you like to go? I said, well, what are the hours? I was thinking, you know, like 7 o'clock at night for one hour every Tuesday or something like that. It's like, no, it's eight-week class, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. I'm like, that's a pretty big commitment. Yeah. I was like, so I'd have to go part-time at my job at Lowe's. So I said, well, sign me up. Sign me up. And I had enough money to save up with uh, kind of what I'd been doing at Lowe's to go part-time. And I still got to work weekends and afternoons and uh, took my EMT. And so this was all happened. This was a summer. So it was May, um, right around, right after the first summer semester right there. So I took my class. I graduated with my EMT, passed the National Registry. Turns out to be probably about the end of July, right at the beginning of August when I passed my National Registry. And uh, same thing, I went back to work at Lowe's, and three people the next day said, hey, you ever been in the Air Force? You look like my buddy in the Air Force. <laughs> I've never seen you. You look like the guy I saw you in the Air Force. Like, you got to be kidding me, right? I, I, this is not a real thing. So right then, I drove down the street, Air Force recruiter, walked in, said, hey, I'm supposed to be in the Air Force. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know how to do this. The I guess customers I, at Lowe's I, are I, writing my life script. Yeah, right? I, I mean, I remember driving. There's a huge billboard that says, do you want to join the Air Force? Right? It was on my way to the, to the Lowe's recruiting or the Air Force recruiting station. Um, so to me, and I'm not saying anything else, but August 28th is the day I left for the Air Force. When it comes to my life story and how I got to be a fireman, I don't ever believe it was a choice for me. Yeah. It was a calling. I was just going to go to Lowe's, work there for a little while, save some money, go get my business degree, and then I wouldn't have had a plan one on what I was going to do with my life. But in May of 2008, next thing I know, I was in the Air Force with an EMT certificate in August 2008. And um, I ended up going to the Air Force, did the fireman stuff, um, came back, worked at Tinker for a little while. So, so when you went into the recruiter, did you say, hey, I'm supposed to be in the Air Force and I'm supposed to be a firefighter? <laughs> so I walked in. I was like, hey, I, I, do you have Air Force firefighting? Is that even a thing? And right. He was like, yeah, it absolutely is a thing. Okay. I was like, well, can you get me on the fire department? He said, uh, no, we don't have any slots. And I was yeah, like, I, say, well, I bet it's pretty pretty thin he said no we don't have any slots and i was like okay well thanks and he's like can i get your number i'm like sure I'm like, here's my number two days later called me and says you got a slot and you leave august 28th jeez so, like, so between then and there i had to do all the MEP stuff and go right do all the doctor's visits and fill out some paperwork but yeah i was on a plane to san antonio texas august 28th nice yeah so was that uh did you go in as a uh, active duty no, I did a reservist. Okay. I was a reservist from the start. Yep. I went down and uh, did uh, 
tech school at Goodfellow Air Force Base. So I did six weeks of basic, San Antonio, Lackland. Then uh, it's like three and a half, four months at Goodfellow Air Force Base. Then I came out, worked at Tinker for about a year. And then uh, I applied and got a job at Will Rogers Fire Department, uh, the ARF station here um, in Oklahoma City. So I started there and uh, worked my way up there and started working through the ranks at the 507th um, at the unit in Tinker Air Force Base. And as I was growing, um, I just got to be hungry for the for the industry. Yeah. You know? So so tell me a little bit about, because I don't know, well, I don't know much about, I've heard a little bit here and there, but tell me what, what, what work is like as an Air Force firefighter. What does it look like? What are some of the responsibilities? What's the mission look like? So as an Air Force firefighter, the missions are very, very unique. And active duty, reservist, guard, they're all very similar, like the base functions, right? You have fire engines. You have, uh, you know, like your daily duties. You have training every single day. You have, uh, you know, crash trucks. You have tankers. There's brush trucks. Every installation is, is very, very unique. You know, Tinker Air Force Base has the two largest buildings in the Department of Defense. Hmm. Um, and there's been a massive fire at Tinker Air Force Base back in the 80s in the largest building in the Department of Defense at that point in time. Um, one of them is uh, the old GM plant, which both of these buildings are bigger than the Pentagon. And hmm. the Pentagon's massive as far as square footage. Right. Um, but Tinker Air Force Base is the depot for a lot of you know jet engines, jet parts, uh, fighter, fighter planes, bombers. They do a lot of depot work. And so the population of Tinker Air Force Base during the work hours is, I don't know the numbers, but it's exponential. Like it is a massive, massive place with thousands of workers on there, not including the active duty and not including the civilians and their families and whoever else is there, the retirees who are still living on the installation. Um, but that's what Tinker Air Force Base's mission is. You know, the Department of Defense at Fort Sill. Which so. Is, so to be clear, though, like they're running fire, like structure mm -hmm. fire, structure fire, crash rescue, crash rescue, as well as and then EMS as well. Wildland, a lot of installations run EMS. Some even run their own ambulance in mm -hmm. some locations. Mm -hmm. um, so some some of them have an ALS requirement. You know, there's certain overseas contracts, or excuse me, certain overseas installations that run um, ALS ambulances from the fire department. Um, so to be clear, your EMT came in handy. Yeah, yeah, it worked out. Yeah, it worked out right at the start. Yeah. And so um, as, as I got into the 507th, we started going TDYs, and I was offering up, you know, myself for a lot of the volunteer TDYs, deployments, stuff like that. Um, really helped me kind of grow in my Air Force career, and I looked for every opportunity to learn. Um, and that, that to me, if I can ever, you know, a, a young fireman, right, they all have a spark. There's always a reason for them to to start that career. Mine was a calling. I didn't even know what a fireman does when I started. I quickly found out when I joined the Air Force, or I quickly found out when I got in my clinicals, right, and actually got to see and deal with, you know, what a first responder does. Yeah. And it, I remember the specific call that I went on. It was rollover ejection. It was my very first clinical ever as an EMT, right? I mean, I'm not even sure I want to do this career. And this was the day I remember I, I am going to be a first responder, right? This is where I knew is like all those things at Lowe's, that's a calling and I'm on it and I'm with you, God. So at that point, um, it was a rollover ejection. The guy wasn't going to make it, but my crew chief, my supervisor who came out on scene, I did this clinical in stat right there on the mile of cars in Norman. And this rollover ejection, 
horrific crash. One person, that's all he was. He was just kind of been not drinking a little bit too much. I'm over there doing compressions and I'm as I'm a clinical first day on the job ever. And I'm doing compressions and I remember when CPR search still in your pocket. <laughs> it's not it's just, yeah, it's brand new. Yeah, this month, right, or whatever it was. And uh I remember when the paramedic at the head he decompressed the chest, both lungs. And as I was pushing down, because he was rollover ejection and he hit the guardrail and the car kind of rolled on him a little bit. Mm. As I pushed down, stuff was squirting up on me, on my arms, you know, the typical stuff. And I remember doing it and I'm like, I can't stop. This is, you know, I'm going to try to save this guy's life. That's that's my job, right? Yeah. I am here. And and that, that in my mind, Kurt Vonnegut said it best when he says, when you're out on the edge, you see all sorts of things. Yeah. And at that point, I, I remember at that point thinking, I'm here to do this job and I have a calling to be on the edge. I need to be on the edge of society so that other people don't have to see this or be a part of this. Or maybe I can make a difference in at least one person's life this week. Right? I mean, I remember that calling with, that's me. And Isaiah 6, 8, that's one of my fab- favorite Bible verses. And God said, who shall I send? And Isaiah says, send me, right? And that, that to me was, okay, this is where I'm at right there. And so uh, that, that started off my career. And as I moved in the Air Force and moved in my fire department, um, that to me, I'm hungry. Yeah. I'm hungry. You know, let me touch on that real quick. The, sure. You know, I think about that scripture and I think about the, you know, the mission that, you know, no matter where you are in the world, right? Just right. last week, I sat down with a friend of mine from France who's a firefighter. And, you know, we talked about, you know, this, this industry on the global scale, right? Right. And at the end of the day, all of us have the same primary mission, which is to serve our community. Right. Right. And we are equipped with a skill set, high level of knowledge, right? And we go and we get continuing education and training and experience extrication and TRT mountain rescues and hazmat. And like, there's all these different things that we um, become learn how to do to become all hazards responders in our communities. And um, so I love that when you say, Hey, send me like, I am willing to uh, risk life and limb, willing to expose myself to carcinogens, willing to expose my brain uh, to all kinds of horrific visions that are indelibly etched into your body and into your soul uh, forever. Well, I'm willing to do that. Why? Because it's an opportunity to serve in the community. And I can't, it's a very, you know, I hate saying it because it feels kind of trite, but we go, it's a noble calling, right? But right. it's but it's real, right? It it's, a, it's a real opportunity. And we, when we forget sometimes, we get a little bit jaded and a little bit callous and we forget that we have a, a skill set that we get to apply in people's lives when they have no other option. Yeah. You know, when you're, you're there with that person who's, who is, uh, soul is leaving their body right. and you're just trying to hold them, pull, hold back the dam, right. <laughs> give them another chance. If it's, if it's God's will, right. If it's the, if, the, if, if it is going to happen, we're going to be the ones who are going to change that, that, uh, course. Right. Uh, and maybe, maybe it's not that maybe their time has come and they're gone. Right. Okay. But you know what? We're going to give them a fighting chance. And that's the one thing that I've always thought is I, I, I never wanted to be my, I never wanted my skills to be so weak or to be the cause rather not to be weak, right. but to be the cause for us to not give our best effort. 
No doubt. Because I wasn't strong enough. I wasn't fast enough. I wasn't smart enough. I couldn't remember my drug calculations, whatever. No doubt. I never wanted to be that person. So I always wanted to be training and studying and, and preparing so that when the call came, right, I was prepared. Yeah. When I had my spark, and we all had it, every yeah. fireman did. Yeah. Some lose it. And I can't be ignorant to that. Yeah. But when I had my spark, I kept blowing on it and adding fuel to it. And I think that is the best thing you can do for young firemen in any agency, any, any facet, any thread of our industry, even in the military or in the police department, law enforcement is when they get that spark, keep them on it and feed it and feed it and feed it. And then keep giving them that reason to, to make it that day, Mm -hmm. you know, give them that reason to say, Hey, look, I still want to be a fireman today. Because when people lose that spark, that's where you get those bad stories of the grumpy old man on the recliner. or mm-hmm. You get those stories of the cranky police officer at the corner. And everybody can have a bad day. That's yeah. totally normal. Yeah. But feeding those sparks and making sure they understand the reason. When I started my first fire academy when I was as, as an instructor, I did a Wagner County Fire Department um, or a Wagner County uh, Fire Academy. And I made every single person on the first day of that fire academy Write down why you want to be a fireman. And I don't know whether or not they did this part or not, but I told them, I was like, keep this in your locker at work. Mm. Hang it up in your locker at work. Because whenever you get that bad day of, man, I don't want to go to work today, look at that and remember when you wrote it and why you wrote it. Yeah. Because there's a reason all of us are here. There's a reason you want it. Whether you believe it to be, you know, divine intervention or whether you believe it to be just because I like the adrenaline of it. Whatever that case may be, yeah. whatever your personal reason is, take that and feed it because that's what's going to make you make an impact in somebody's life today. Yeah. And I think that's, that's very important from my view. Yeah. Are you familiar with Simon Sinek? No. So he's a, a speaker and uh, he, he talks about, he wrote a book called, uh, I'm going to mess up the name of it. I think it's called, what is your why? Something like that. Anyways. He talks about that principle, right? Understanding your why for right. doing whatever, right? You know, you can you can watch a, a Rocky movie and get pumped up and motivated, but that's not, you know, motivation can be fleeting, you know, when things get hard or yeah. uncomfortable or you, you know, get an injury or you develop PTSD or whatever, like suddenly it's not enough to be motivated. You got to have purpose. Right. And, you know, that comes from identifying what your personal why is and then and remembering that. That's really important. And that's a great lesson to teach folks, right? To write that down. Write it down. Write it down while it's fresh in your mind. Right. You know? Like now is your time because yeah. you have that spark today. Yeah. Write it down. Yeah. As many words as you want, as little words as you want. Yeah. Write it down. And if you keep it, and if you do look back on it one day, and that might be the day that you actually needed that little phrase. Yeah. And that might make a difference in somebody's life. Yeah. What, um, so if you were to write that down, what's your why? My why today? Yeah. Or what, what was it in the beginning? In the beginning was, I believe it was a calling. This is, this is my David and Goliath is the fire service. That's, I, I truly believe that. Okay. I was born for this purpose. I was born to make a difference in somebody's life and in my career. Yeah. Whether that be, you know, somebody I ran on a few years ago, whether it's somebody I'm going to run on 10 years from now, I hope my career is that long, but there's a purpose I'm here and I want to be part of it. 
and I'm excited to be part of it. And uh, I try to chase that. Like tomorrow might be my reason for being here. Hmm. And uh, that's what I'm looking forward to is finding that out. Yeah. 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 My, uh, mine has evolved a little bit, but when I first came on the job, before I came on the job, I was 17. I, I won't tell you the whole story because I've I've told it on here before, and it, I don't want to belabor it. But I ran into a house fire mm-hmm. with a friend of mine, and uh, we were, <laughs> frankly, we were not in a whole lot of risk. But we pulled this little girl out who was hiding, and uh, in the years after that fire, um, you know, the the husband perished, and the the mom who was at the store at the time um, for years sent Christmas cards to, to me, thanking me for saving her daughter. Now, knowing what I know now, that kid was in a totally safe place. She was hiding in the downstairs bathroom, far from the fire. Um, but, but what I learned was in that event was two dumb teenagers were willing to act on behalf of another human being. Right. And, and that became what I wanted in life was I wanted to be of use I wanted to be a servant. Right. And so for me, my why is wrapped up in knowing that this this organization, the fire service at, at large, gives us the opportunity to serve other human beings. And so um, sometimes that is a smile and a wave in the grocery store. Right. Right. Sometimes that is, uh, not to be too dramatic, but ripping people from the clutches of death. Right. Right. It's what we do sometimes. And, you know, I have never in my 24 years as a professional firefighter pulled anybody from a fire. Haven't had the opportunity. Had lots and lots of fires, lots and lots of events, pulled people from wrecks and off mountains and all kinds of stuff. But haven't had that repeated experience. Now I've done lots of amazing things and had lots of really cool experiences. Um, So it's, we, we, we look at this and go, wow, there's this going to rescue a little girl from a burning building. Well, I haven't done that again. And, yep. you know, and but, it, it evolves, right? Yeah. But the cool thing about it, and, and we're given that opportunity every day is every single day, firemen all across this country, yourself included, mm-hmm. woke up every single day, went to the firehouse and said, today I'm willing to rescue a baby from a burning building. Right. And that to me, that gives everybody purpose. Right. And that's what we're talking about is the purpose. Yes. The why. Right. And it, it's incredible because it, it's, insp- it's, it's inspiring. Thinking right now, three, four, five blocks from r- right here, there's a firehouse with six, seven, eight firemen in it waiting for that call. Right. And they're just sitting there waiting and yeah. they're ready. And that's, that's very inspiring to me. And it's cool being around those. And I love this industry because we're here in Tulsa, Oklahoma with people that were sitting here. Right. I mean, the leaders of our industry. Right. And we're in a room full of people who are willing to do that exact same thing from right. all over the world. Right. And it's a uh, and it's an expi- It's so inspiring for me. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. So let's be specific. We'll be crystal clear about what we're doing here. Um, we are sitting on. We sit on uh, the IFSA validation committees. Yes. On different committees, and um, validate the textbooks that our brethren and sisters utilize to educate themselves to become the providers that we would hope them to be. Right. Right. So, um, and you know, and just for those who are unaware what we do on the validation committee is technical writers edit and write 
the textbooks and then subject matter experts, which I, I, I kind of choke on those words a little bit as I say that because I'm like, <laughs> so suddenly I'm that guy. How'd that happen? Yeah, so, not in this room. <laughs> <laughs> the other people who are here yeah. um, provide that uh, expertise by reading the material and validating it for accuracy and, and currency, et cetera, so that when you get that textbook in your fire academy or, or when you're studying for your next promotional exam, um, you'll have something that's relevant and accurate, hopefully. That's our objective. So, you know, I think about that and think, man, like all these people who show up to this conference who are willing to participate in that process, um, it's it's an extension of what they came on this job to do. Right. You know, so how, so how do you realize your purpose? I'm going to jump, I'm going to jump way ahead on you here as a fire chief, right? As an administrator, Mm -hmm. how do you realize that purpose? Well, I mean, obviously my purpose is, uh, I've always looked at the chain of command as, Hey, as, as the medic on the truck, right? I, I impact one person on one call as, you know, the supervisor of two ambulances, Right now I can kind of have an impact on two people uh, because each one's running on a different patient, right? Um, crew chiefs or, or station captains or whoever, the more assets they get, the more rank they have, the more impact they're having on the community, the more they're able to kind of reach their own expertise out through the firemen below them. They can reach that, you know, the, the three-tier process, right? We talk about education, experience, and training as being a three-legged stool, right? Those three pieces are what build good company officers. And that's kind of what I've kind of strove, or not strove, but driven myself to uh, to achieving is, is a good, solid three-legged stool and kind of trying to gain that level of experience through incidents and departments and uh, you know, whatever else I can get, uh, education through, you know, trying to get my next degree and next certification class and next, and then training through in-house. Right. And as I've grown through the, through the ranks and grown through the departments, I've gotten to a point to where now as a fire chief, I can help those guys develop their three legged stools. Mm -hmm. So say the three legs again, education, experience, training, and training. To me, that's what makes a good company officer, that's what makes a good chief officer. You know, education is, is the bookwork, the academia of the fire service, the theory, the, the going through and actually looking at data, right? The training is let's put some hands on hands lines and get out there and, you know, practice the tools, forcible entry. Let's practice the, you know, anything, any facet that you're working on in the fire service. And then your experience just comes from, Hey, look, I've seen this smoke pattern before, or, Hey, I've, I've seen this. Let's, let's, let's deal with this a different way. Or, Hey, I like what you're doing here. Let's continue to push it that way. Right. That's just, you know, kind of having the fifth sense or the sixth sense on the scenes, right? That's just comes from years of managing, right? And as you develop and as you promote and as you gain, you know, different supervisory kind of duties, it's your job to start pushing that spark that they have and helping it grow. And I use those three stools for my own personal development of, of my individuals. And uh, to me, I think that is almost as uh, enjoyable for me as watching them train their firemen and them work a scene with their firemen and it be successful, right? I mean, those are kind of your, your plants, you're watering your plants out in the backyard and they're growing and growing and growing and 
they finally produce some really effective fruit that you can actually take in and eat, not the ones that are bug it eaten and all that, right? <laughs> but the good fruit, right? And you get to witness that. That to me is another impact that that I just I can't explain how good that feels as you get to be a, a chief officer or a company officer and see your firemen that you've brought up in the fire service make huge impacts as they promote and as they develop. And that's, that's, that's a fantastic, fantastic experience Yeah, for me. I think there's a lot of value in being able to extend your impact. Right. You know, so it's, uh, there's, you know, those folks are out in the world serving the customer directly and you have the ability to have an indirect impact right on those folks vicariously through all the folks who who are you know uh, who work for you or under you or with you what have you right and so that's a that's such a, an important perspective to maintain so many guys are like oh i would never want to be you know in admin because now i'm i'm not on the field anymore i got to get off a fire truck and i'm right. like well you you know it's about there's a certain level of preparedness and readiness that comes with that and when you're ready to shift gears and take that take that step in that direction right. you have to understand what you're getting and from my perspective it's almost like a second career right the first half of my career was very heavy operations and was direct contact with the customer the second half of my career is supporting the men and women on the line on the line right right and helping them be successful through training through operation policy right. through you know support structures you know and, and resources etc right you know and what a neat opportunity to be able to do that and um, you know I love your three pillars because to me uh, you know I always say KSA your knowledge skills and abilities exactly which to me those are my three little pillars right. and I look at those kind of the same way um, and they knit in with what you're talking about perfectly so I, I just think that's such a fantastic um, mindset um, as a, as an organizational leader. So, so let me ask you, let me shift gears on here a little bit and ask you another question. You know, we talked a little bit, uh, about your, your time in the air force, but you know, you mentioned that you had been on deployment recently. Yes. And I would love, you know, you had a pretty unique experience that, you know, a lot of folks who've served in the air force in crash rescue, like this is you, there was a narrow group, a narrow window of time and the experience that you had. And I would love for you to share as much as you're willing and able to share. Well, um, you know, I, I, we deployed, uh, I deployed as the deputy fire chief, um, to Qatar air base in, uh, Qatar, um, which is pretty small little country. The world cup's actually going to be there this year, starting in November. Uh, so it's the first time, uh, they've, they've gotten, uh, to host that, but, um, the downtown, you know, we didn't get to see a whole lot of it because I was still kind of over there at kind of the back end of the second wave of COVID, right? Hmm. Um, so they were very, very restrictive because they had the Arab cup coming out. Um, but that, that is a very beautiful country. If you ever want to do an off the books, cool, um, country on, on like a vacation or deployment, I believe, uh, the city of Qatar, uh, or yeah, Qatar city is going to be a, uh, a great place to visit someday. Same like Abu Dhabi and all that. But, um, so the Qatar air base is, is one of the major air bases for, um, the United States Air Force and other coalition partners. There's a big NATO presence. There's a, a lot going on there. Um, but it's a massive base. It's it's probably long-term they're going to have it uh, kind of spin back up to kind of more of a, a forward, kind of like a forward operating base to where they can actually uh, establish kind of a more of a permanent presence with permanent party 
rather than making it a, a deployment site. Hmm. Well, over there, um, you know, while I was over there, about two weeks, three weeks into my deployment, um, the United States government pulled out of Afghanistan. Um, while we were over there, um, there's, you know, we were watching it on the news just like everybody else in the world was. You know, we didn't know what was coming. We didn't understand what was going on. Uh, which, we knew, which I feel like is a very common experience for people who are in the military. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. We got the news on, right? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, there's there's some things I could talk about, some things I think I can't. But, uh, you know, I remember getting woken up at 2 in the morning for a specific call and saying, oh, man, what is going on? Uh, Debbie Fire Chief getting a phone call from dispatch saying, hey, you need to get out of bed. You need to come down to the air, airfield right now. So I head down there. Um, had, had you at that point in your career ever been scrambled for anything other than like, you know. Well, we, I've had some, you know, kind of flooding whenever I was over here, kind of in the Tulsa area. And then we've had, uh, you know, several tornadoes. Oklahoma's got some of that. Well, no, I meant specifically when you're in the Air Force. Or you meant in the Air Force, a tinker at the Air no, Force? No, 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 no. As far as like woken up and told me I need to get to the airfield. No, not not at that point. Okay. Not at that point. So so clearly a, a unique experience. Yeah. This yeah. was this was very unique. Yeah. Um, and so we head down to the airfield. Uh, woke the fire chief up as well. We were we were headed down, so we get down there, and um, there's a C-17 parked on the on the ramp, and there's just, I mean, tons of security forces around. I mean, we got the big guns out on top of the trucks. We got stuff, everything, and um, they said, "Hey, we we think there might have been something happened on this plane. Like, there's something happened that might be hijacked or gunmen or something." Did like, you guys okay. know where it had come from? Uh, at this point, I don't think, I mean, we kind of speculated on kind of where it come from. We knew that there was a potential for some of the airlift stuff to kind of come our way at this point. Um, but we didn't know. So the, uh, we surround the airplane and, uh, they got it stood up. We had the air, uh, the buses all come out. And remember this is Qatar in, uh, July. And so I think it's hot in Oklahoma in July. It's <laughs> a little different heat over there. I mean, we're, we're looking at. Um, it's, it's probably about two o'clock in the morning at this time when we get the call, it's still hundred degrees outside. Easy. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, we pull up and this is supposed to be an easy deployment, right? This is supposed to be, uh, there's two swimming pools on this base. It was supposed to be hanging out and it's an air force. That base. sounds like classic air force. It is exactly. It's exactly. It's IUD air base, right? I mean, this is nothing crazy. So anyway, um, we show up, we get it circled around and we said, Hey, let's start offloading security forces in it fire department's got command we established our fire uh, trucks in the way so the airplane can't taxi we didn't know what's going on pilots turn the engines off everything shut down uh, pilots saying they're staying in the cockpit they're not coming out okay and so finally they don't know what's behind the door from the cockpit because they have it shut locked off so they don't know what's behind them so we open the side door of the c-17 and people start coming out and it's people dressed in traditional arab garments right some most of them don't have shoes on some people are carrying huge bags of stuff, like just backpacks full, duffel bags, whatever they had, you know, all sorts of stuff. We're like, what's going on? And we start searching them. The, the police are starting to search them, and we're corralling them, corralling them. We order some buses to come out because we start realizing how many people are coming out. And uh, six hours later, people are still coming off this plane. How many people can, you, well, you said, it, what did you say it was? A C, uh, C-17. C-17. How many people can a C-17 carry? Right, usually around 200. Okay. This one had 823 passengers on it. Holy mackerel. Um, so 823 passengers on it. There was a lot of confusion on the ramp 
over there while they were trying to do this airlift, and this is kind of when the whole uh, Afghanistan airlift thing kind of got yeah. taken so, over. And, yeah, use your imagination. You saw it on the news. Yeah, right? and, so. and then so all that, that plane just took off and uh, landed in Qatar, and this was our first kind of awakening of what was about to occur over the next 14 days. Wow. So how many of those... Well, carry on. Sorry, I, so, got, I got questions. But yeah, on. I mean, it, it, and when they were coming off the plane, I mean, some people had everything that they'd owned in it. Like there was just bags of money, bags of jewelry, bags of. Some people even tried to bring, you know, some of the kind of, you know, illicit su- substances that you can get in Afghanistan, right? You know, stuff like that that, uh, uh, you know, they were going to sell for money or whatever, right? Um, so anyway, we finally get all those people off, put them on a bus, send them to a hangar. And now we don't know what to do with those people. So the Air Force Base itself, Qatar is trying to figure out what to do with a bunch of refugees from a country that right. we weren't even planning for. And this country doesn't necessarily know that we're doing this right right at this point. Right? Now yeah, we, yeah. What yeah we, mean, don't, right? we don't know what we're doing. Well, after that, it just started happening quicker than anybody would ever imagined. It was C-17 would land, another 200 people. C-17 would land, another 200 people. All the other countries... Um, they didn't know where to send them, but we were just shipping in C-17s to Afghanistan, shipping them out. The only place that anyone knew that we could land was our installation. And over the next 14 days, there were 62,000. I wish I had my statistics with me. I wish I have, I'll send you a sheet that you can look at, but there was 62,000 refugees came through our installation in a two week period. Right. Um, And where did you put them all? Hangers. Okay. Warehouses, tents, and uh, I mean, it was whatever we could build. We started recalling people from other installations whenever, and they were flying in on other planes, not C-17s, because all the C-17s probably from all over the world were dedicated just to go to Afghanistan and come to us. Eventually, we got it to where they could ship them to, to Ramstein, I believe, and there was a couple other installations across the, uh, well, that side of the world that... Uh, people that that were accepting those refugees on the c-17s wow during this period of time my installation brought in sixty-two thousand. yeah so what were the what were the things that your your firefighters were doing what was the work that you guys had to do my firefighters um during this period of time we had uh we had two engines that we could run or, or an engine and a tanker that we could run on the airfield to this part we still had at station one we had an engine and a tanker up there and that basically was just dedicated to the whole rest of the installation. We basically dedicated my engine and my tanker and several of my crash trucks to just start running to all these airplanes. Because we got to a point where we had received so many that we had filled up all the facilities and we had no more room. It was standing room only in a lot of these places with people that don't speak our language. Yeah. And we start they, they start shipping in State Department personnel to kind of do immigration and try to figure out how to deal with all that. And it was it was a huge, massive logistical nightmare. Yeah. Um and, and everybody there, I'm not saying anybody at that installation did the wrong thing. From the three star to the one star to my commanders in my uh my squadron, my unit, my my mission support group, fantastic leadership. Nothing would have been so successful on the back end of it if it wasn't for them and their leadership. Um, but during this period of time, 
My engine was running calls so often, so much that we couldn't keep up and the planes couldn't take the people and the passengers anywhere because there was nowhere to put them. Right. So now they'd be parked on the ramp for eight, seven or eight hours in 140 degree heat with no water, with no food. They haven't eaten or sleeping in four days. These people are covered in, you know, sewer yeah, water. Yeah, not to mention the hygiene issues that yeah, come along with just having it, so many people. Well, in, they were yeah. they were using the bathroom on the floor of the C-17. I mean, there's nowhere, there's no bathroom. Yeah. I didn't, yeah. it was, uh, it was just filthy. And as soon as we'd offload a C-17, they'd refuel it, spray it out, and then ship it off again to go get more. And it was nonstop, just constant. And a lot of those C-17s, not only were we getting the heat emergencies, but some of these patients had gunshot victims. We had blast injuries. We had trauma mm-hmm. victims, broken arms. We had children who are on the wrong plane than their parents or their parents didn't show up because they'd been mm-hmm. hurt or injured Separated over there somehow. in Afghanistan. Or You don't know where a lot of this stuff was. And we were having you know translation problems, and there was people from you know coming on these planes. It wasn't just Afghans. There were some people from... You know, Korea, just who were on vacation there, I guess, or British reporters getting on the airplanes, or it was just people from all over the world and, and Afghanistan that were getting on these C-17s, getting shipped to a whole different country, and no one knew what to do or how to deal with it. And, and 62,000 is a lot of people, right? I mean, that, that fills up a college stadium. I mean, that's yeah. yeah. I don't know how to logistically think about that and we we had to think about that quickly because now our installation's running out of water now our installation's running out of food the air force didn't have enough mres to give the people and a lot of them can't eat the mres because religious requirements or say they were you know kosher or whatever right we just didn't have the meals that they would be able to use um and so there was actually a point in time where my civil engineering squadron was trying to figure out how to get it done, but we were hours away from running out of water for the entire installation. Like no one was going to have any drinking water. Yeah. And it's 140 degrees yeah. in the third week so of it's, July. It's interesting. So you have this humanitarian crisis um, and then you know folks being poured into an installation that doesn't have the capacity to manage a humanitarian issue, right? right. So now you have to work on the logistics and the, the support for that. Um, yeah, and, and, yeah, I'm at a loss. <laughs> it's it's mind numbing. Right. Um, so what a, yeah, what a nightmare. Yeah. And it, it, there's nowhere to call for mutual aid and there's nowhere to call. <laughs> you can't call for automatic aid. That's a good point. <laughs> I remember we're standing there and I'm like, Hey, we got to set up a medical clinic. Hey, we got to do all this. And the four bird Colonel looked at me and the fire chief and said, no one's coming. Yeah. yeah they, they just looked me in the eye and me and the chief looked at each other and said, you know what? You're right. That we, no one's coming. Like we've got to, we need to set up a medical clinic here, but we already got another hospital set up. We already stood up a field hospital and there's no more medics to staff it. And so we were like, all right, two firemen get over here. So yeah. then we switched from running 24 hour shifts, which my firemen for the most of the deployments and typical air force is 24 on 24 off. Mm-hmm. We switched to 12s. Mm-hmm. And so that would give our guys at least a little bit of relief because 24 hours on, they're staying up 24 hours because they were running calls nonstop. Stand up 24s every day. They couldn't. They couldn't because they couldn't go to sleep the next day and sleep. And so we switched it to 12s and said, your nights, your days. And my A shift and B shift, they managed it and they saved it. You know, in all honesty, 62,000 people. There was a couple incidents where some people um, passed away not on our installation. 
But uh, 62,000 people came through this and not a single loss of life. Civilian, refugee, any of it. Military, none of it. And in, in my installation. Yeah. Right. And uh, I credit that completely to my guys who were there. And when you talk about an inspirational moment, right, we had, I had 18 year old kids graduated in May of, you know, 2020, joined the Air Force, finally got their ticket to go to the Air Force station or their, their Air Force base, got there in March 2021. They showed up, landed in Qatar, July 2021. Went right to the pool. Right to the pool. A couple of days, right? <laughs> and then immediately dealt with this. Yeah. And if I didn't have the team that I had over there, yeah. it, it's incredible watching an 18-year-old kid stand up and deal with some of the most catastrophic things I've ever dealt with in my entire career. Yeah. And uh, they met that challenge and blew it out of the water. This is their first real-world life experience. Yeah, they're going to be real disappointed in the rest of their life. <laughs> nothing's going to be as exciting no and uh, that was the probably the most exciting two weeks of my entire life was was being able to witness yeah i mean it was it was to its core pure humanity yeah from in an inhumane situation right right and i don't want to get too much into the weeds on any of that but it was pure human humanity in the most inhumane yeah. situation i've ever seen yeah well you know think about any any disaster right i would chalk this up as a disaster it was a disastrous extrication from that from afghanistan and by all accounts it was a shit storm and you know you guys were tasked with providing a, a, you know expanding your capacity to absorb the impact of this of this incident and you know man i'm proud of you guys for for towing that line man what an amazing accomplishment and, you know, it causes me to think like, you know, what, what are the lessons you take from that? And now you bring that home to your community and go, okay, how do I, you know, what are the things that you're going to deal with here? Natural disasters, right? In Oklahoma, like all kinds of different types of weather systems that you right. deal with. And you could have that, you could have something, maybe not the same scale, but, but certainly a community disaster where you have to expand your capacity. And there's a great, there's a little Instagram, there's a company called 30 Seconds Out. And they make a patch that says, no one is coming, it's up to us. Right. And I love that because that, when you said that earlier, I was like, that's exactly right. We have to maintain that mindset that we are the last stop. And, you know, we are, no, there's no responders that are coming to, you know, be our emergency response. We are the response. Right. So, um, you know, what does it take to be prepared for that? Right. So what are, so for you, when you think about like the big I mean, you talked about humanitarianism and, and, and the ability to expand and absorb that impact and, and the leverage of your, the leveraging the, the capacity of your people and their ability to, to, to step up. But what are some of the other, if any, lessons that you took away from that, that you're going to apply in the rest of your career and in your life? Innovation. You know, just to me, pure innovation. Um, without the outside of the box Hey, I don't care what the rules say. It needs to get done right now. Mm. Rules without those innovative ideas, people would have died. Honestly, um, there was a point where our guys were just running ragged. Our engine, it it it's a desert fire truck. The maintenance on it, at best, you know, if I need a belt, it's gonna be three six weeks. We didn't have the ability to say, hey, this is our only truck. 
what we did was we got with vehicle maintenance says, hey, give us every single little white pickup truck you got, Toyota Hilux style. Mm-hmm. And I started putting fire trucks and EMTs and medics. And we called PJs over and said, hey, get in this truck. I need you running medical calls. Just drive over to that pickup, whoever's sick, drive back and drop them off in this tent. We'll put medics in here. And so we would put two medics in a tent and they would drive out there in a pickup truck, pick up patients, bring them back, drive out there to the next airplane, pick them up, bring them back. They were running so many calls. We had to find how are we going to fuel them? Right. So we would, we'd park it and just give them a new truck and someone else would take that to go fuel it. Right. And it was just whatever staffing needs we could get figured out. There was a point in time where the guys didn't have showers. And so chief and he would take some of the other people from other squadrons who weren't really doing anything like finance or whatever, right? <laughs> Those guys, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, they don't have like a, an actual mission that they were on at that point in time, or yeah. maybe somebody who was, um, you know, kind of down, didn't have anything else going on or off duty or whatever volunteers. Right. And, yeah, uh, they, they could drive a truck. Yeah. Well, we would, we would take the fire truck over and use some of our extra relief fire trucks to use it as kind of a shower so that they could have baths. Now, we would stand on top of a Connex box and kind of spray it in a fan. So we didn't take too many pictures of it because it looked like you're hosing down a bunch of, you know, refugees. But it, that's yeah. essentially what we're doing is doing like a rain down on top of them to where they can actually give them some soap. And people would, you know, straight up shower over there. And then yeah. we set up a women's station with women only who were doing that. Mm-hmm. And those innovative tactics were just providing just a little bit more humanity to those people who are truly having the absolute worst experience of their life. You know, they've just given everything up. They've lost everything. And that's, that's another thing that I've learned in my life is it doesn't matter how bad of a day you're having. Someone's got it worse and they're still smiling. You know, they've given up everything they've ever known. And those kids are having the the day of their lives right now, kicking that little soccer can back and forth that they made. (laughs) Right. And uh, just seeing the smiles on their faces and seeing the parents kind of with their relief of getting out of that terrible situation. I mean, it it made your day. Yeah. And there was a lot of volunteer opportunities there. But our guys would come up with innovative ways every single day on, hey, let's do it this way better or different. Right. And those listening to your guys and their innovation, because they're the boots on the ground. Hey, we can't sustain this fire engine. It's going to break. Right. That, all right, well, let's, Chief and I'll come up with a plan. Took us about three hours, figured a plan out. Here's the new policy. We're starting immediately, right? Here's three fire trucks. We stole them from vehicle maintenance, <laughs> right? And so it, it just happened that easy. And yeah. all it's got to do is start off with a little idea. Yeah. And uh, I credit all that to, to everybody down there who was boots on the ground in Qatar between the months of July 2021 and March 2022. Those guys are true American heroes, as well as everybody else on that installation. I mean, I, it was flawless from absent commander down. Yeah. It was a flawless response. Well, I imagine you got to you have have a lot of people who are being flexible and willing to do unusual, you know, do unusual things. You know, you said get outside the box. That's exactly right. Right. You know, policy has to go in the can because the there is not a policy for this. Right. So you know, you got to adapt. Right. That's that's beautiful. I love that. It's a, uh, you know, you said something too. You said, uh, you know, listening to the boots on the ground. I think it's really important as an organizational leader or you know, a leader at any level, frankly, you, to listen to the people who have operational context and figure out what their needs are, right? right? They have the most intimate knowledge of what's happening 
in right. an operation. So you got to listen to what they're saying. Um, and you've got to, you know, you, you got to build trust and, and be able to have those good conversations. But that's a really important thing. You got to listen to your people. Sure. Because they have good forward knowledge of what's happening. So. Yeah, absolutely. And they're smart. They are. I mean, they, they know how to fix it. Yeah. They just got to tell you. Yeah. That's And if you have to have that relationship of, of you know, it's, it's hard to get that bridge gap, right? I mean, a lot of people and a lot of departments run it like chief walks in the room, nobody talked to them. Right. Right. But uh, you got to have that relationship with your leaders and your subordinates yeah. to where if there's a good idea out there, one way or another, you got to put it on the table and you got to listen. 100%. I mean, it's, it's just got to be out there. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add that you have to create an environment right. that fosters that. Right. right. It starts with it starts by letting people talk, giving them the opportunity to share their ideas, you know, regardless of what you think, you know, right. you are not, you are not the smartest person in the room. No. And you're surrounded by people who are fully intelligent. You might be responsible for executing, but right. there's lots you're surrounded by lots of smart people and you got to listen to them and give them a, give them an environment to speak. Absolutely. Yeah. They, tr- they make sure they trust. Yeah. Get right. that environment. Build the trust so that they feel comfortable sharing their thoughts and ideas because yeah. you're going to get gold when you let that happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, let me, uh, let me ask you some, we're going to start pulling this toward a close here. I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions. Okay. Okay. What's one thing that you believe that other people think is crazy? I believe that other people think I'm crazy. Um, well, they don't think you're crazy. What's an idea or a thought you have that other people might think is crazy? That might think is crazy. Well, I think everything, every, everybody here in this industry, it, they're here for a purpose, right? And they're here for a calling. And just such as the chaplain said in Qatar, such a time as this. Right, that's a that's a verse out of Esther. Can't quote the actual chapter or verse, but out of Esther, Google it. Yeah, <laughs> it'll come up. <laughs> yeah, such a time as this, right? And and that's beautiful to me. Whether you, that is when you find your moment, your purpose. Such a time as this. That's why you're here. All right. All right. Well, I, I don't think that's crazy. I think that's wonderful. Oh, okay. Yeah. So somebody else might. So what's a? Let me ask you this. What's a piece of advice? that you've been given that is the worst piece of advice you've ever been given worst piece just the worst piece oh, just man, i garbage. think i bottled that up i don't know <laughs> <laughs> worst piece of advice all right ponder on that give me what's yeah. the best use the piece fog of, nozzle what's yeah. the be- <laughs> there it is there it is the truth comes out yeah. right to the surface <laughs> uh okay what's the best piece of advice you've been given spark that fire and spark that fire and uh follow it you know, you can't chase a dream if you don't chase it. And, uh, you know, that, that, that to me is just important. All right. I love that. All right. Last thing. So this podcast is called Fireground Fitness Podcast. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean to you to be Fireground Fit? Fireground Fit's well-rounded. I mean, you got to be well-rounded. Your overall health, I mean, just mental health, behavioral health, spiritual health, family health. You gotta be keeping all that well balanced. I mean, if you can't go home and be at home, then you can't come to work and be at work. I mean, that that to me is you have to have a good family, you have to or a good family lifestyle, or build some kind of home for yourself, whatever that looks like. I'm not trying to say one looks better than the other, but you have to have a good support group all outside of work, just as well as you have a good support group inside of work. And then you got to take care of your physical fitness, your, you know, nutrition, eat right, 
don't drink too much. I mean, it's okay to have a couple here and there, but you got to keep it in moderation and, and just take care of your business. Whatever your business is, you define it and take care of it, right? That to me is fire ground fitness. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, let's lift the big weights. Let's fight gravity, right? Let's do the, do the things. And, but to me, it's, it's well-rounded firemen are the best firemen. One who can take care of home, take care of themselves, and take care of their work. That's, that's all you need right there. I love it. Well, Aaron, thank you for spending some time and sharing your thoughts and sharing some of your experiences and lessons learned. Um, we are all better for it, man. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank to you, that. Rain. It was a pleasure being here. That's all we have for today, folks. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're enjoying this podcast, get on over to Apple Podcasts, rate and review the podcast. That helps other folks find their way here and uh, and provide some valuable feedback. Also, if you have some thoughts or ideas you want to share, please feel free to reach out. I can be found at raingray at firegroundfitness.com. Further, take the lessons and the things that you've learned while listening to this podcast. Find a way to weave them into your life. Look for ways to make yourself better, stronger, faster, more improved, healthier, improve your KSAs, go on out there and get after it.